This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. Today we speak to Alison Gerlach, serial entrepreneur and strategy consultant on how to value your work. is a song by the American rock band MGMT. It was released as the second single from the debut studio album Ocular Spectacular in 2007. Alison, you're a big, successful business person, bought and sold loads of companies. I'll tell you one of the reasons why I think I've maybe not reached my potential in terms of business, I've no idea of my own personal worth. How exactly does somebody go about working that out in a business scenario? 
I think it's a very uh, challenging question that you're asking, and it's one that I think a lot of people are, frankly, afraid to ask themselves. And I'm not sure if it's because uh, the answer might not be something that you're comfortable with, uh, or that somehow it's denigrating the business itself to try and monetize yourself, especially when the business is you. And service businesses in general, it's very hard to delineate between what's the worth of the venture versus what's the worth of you, you, the founder of the venture. Okay. And, and I think you, you, you've obviously kind of, kind of nailed this and thought about this. So um, if I'm going to buy a whole load of supplies for my for my business to go and create something, to help create something, obviously I know um, I know the cost of that. And then I can put specifically on a markup on that in, in terms of the product, which is going to be the output. But give us some idea as to how we start to break down um, your 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 value, you know that person's value, and what are these specific elements that we need to bear in mind. Well, when you're talking about what something is worth, um, and I actually have a piece on my blog on unapologeticcapitalist.com that I've written about that talks very uh, frankly about how do you determine something's worth, and I say it's very simple. You don't. Your customer does, because whoever is handing over their money they're the ones that are ultimately determining your worth. It's the buyer. Um, if in business school, there's a very tried and true statement about um, if uh, you've got something on the market, but you have no buyers, then your value is zero. So you have to look and say, well, you can't price something for a million dollars if someone's only willing to pay $10. So there is a heavy, heavy part of your customer determining your worth because you're worth exactly what someone is willing to pay for you. And really, the, you have to, I think, to figure out worth, you have to actually take some steps back from the accounting of, I bought this for X and I have to sell it for Y, which is some greater number than X. Mm -hmm. I think there's a larger strategic question, which I, I often advocate, which is there's only two questions you should ask. You should ask why and you should ask who. So the first question, why? Why does your product add value? And the second one, who does it add value to? The who gets a little more complicated because it's not just who uses the product, it's who buys the product. Those aren't always the same thing. For instance, you can sell to a business and the person who makes the purchasing decision might not be the actual check writer. Check writer might be the company rather than that person. And that makes it, you've got a couple different who's to think about. But you have to think about why is this product valuable and who is it valuable to so that you can figure out where does the money flow in all of this? Because if there's no money flowing, how can you jump in that river? How can you siphon off some of that money for yourself? Tell us about that first big deal that you did. Tell us about how it was structured, you go in you, and, and actually how you felt when that deal w was actually done. And, and if you actually thought, you know what, I got what I was worth or possibly even more so. Um, I think that there's always this point where you're wondering if you got what, what it's worth. And the answer has to be, you have to be comfortable with if a deal was struck, 
the, an the, the answer to whether or not a deal was successful has less to do with the number that was had. I have often espoused a successful deal means that every party walked away believing they've done the best they can given the circumstances. So whether you are afraid you left money on the table, uh, which anybody who thinks that is very short-sighted uh, because a lot of times people chase, uh, throw dollars away trying to chase pennies. That mm -hmm. um, you should never look at any one deal as you've done one deal. Um, you should always look at it as, I hope this is a deal that gets me to a new starting line so that I can do many more deals in the future. So it's hard for me to think about my first first deal. I can certainly remember the first company I started and the first revenues I generated. And uh, that's always, a challenge because when you're starting a company there's a long time before you can actually generate revenues and you have to take it on faith that what you're pricing at is something that someone's actually going to buy so I will say the moment of the first company that I started which was in the late 90s the moment that I received first revenues um, there was something so extraordinary about it I think when you've worked so hard to bring a product to market and the the high that you feel when somebody has paid you something uh, for what you've offered them, that feels quite extraordinary. Um, and I think if you don't feel that, if you feel like, boy, I just got paid that and I feel uh, just, you know, somehow whorish about it, um, you know, or like you've just prostituted yourself, then you probably have not gotten your value or you have somehow undervalued yourself. Um, I think there was definitely in the late 90s a big problem with that. A lot of the dot-com companies would give away their product. They just felt like, we need so many customers, we'll figure out the making money later. And of course the problem with that is, if you give away your product, then you've just valued it at zero. So, at late 90s, were you in Silicon Valley? Were you in San Francisco? San Francisco which neatly takes us on to your nominated piece of music. Um, it's the Mowgli's and San Francisco. Um, tell us why uh, this piece of music means so much to you. Well, you know, this, this song came out in 2012, which was actually a good 15 years after I started my first company and uh, had been in uh, the Bay Area for some time. But I remember hearing the song and the melody was had this sense of sort of uh, optimistic chaos and it felt very much like the time when I did move to San Francisco I moved there from Boston and the the whole startup entrepreneurial energy then which really there was it was fast-paced it was chaotic but it was incredibly supportive and passionate and exciting and like you just felt like you couldn't contain it and it, you were gonna burst and from the first time I heard that song it just brought me back to that time, to the time, to the place, to the energy. Uh, so how could I not think of the entrepreneurial spirit every time I hear that song?
why is it that San Francisco, the Bay Area, is an area which is so ripe for not only just new media, but also for entrepreneurship? What is it in the water in the Bay Area, do you think? I believe it has to do with the very cosmopolitan uh, makeup of San Francisco. Um, having lived in a lot of major cities in the U.S. myself, what's really unique about San Francisco and the Bay Area in and of itself is everybody's from somewhere else. Um, even people in the city, maybe they grew up part of the Bay Area, but they've moved away, they've come back. There's people there from all over the world. Everybody there is a, a transplant in some way, shape, or form. And that kind of multivariate perspective coupled with, I think, a lot of the investment venture money that's there, uh, along with a lot of the academics that are there, you, you sort of put all those together and you can't help but stoke an unbelievable amount of innovation. And I, I believe that's why it's such an incredible, energetic epicenter of, of entrepreneurial activity. Which other bits of, uh, of planet Earth do you think have a similar energy to San Francisco? Boy, well, I, I have not visited all the nooks uh, that this planet has to offer, so I'm sure there are many uh, around. You know, I find... Or, or maybe, it, maybe in the States. I think that there's something so unique about San Francisco that it's hard to replicate one place to another. I think that, you know, I've also lived in Boston, which has an incredible amount of intellectual capital and curiosity and also has a, a great startup uh, you know, environment, but it's different. It's so academically driven be for the obvious reasons of so many strong academic institutions there that collaborate. Um, and because, again, it's a very international place uh, where you get multiple perspectives. Um, New York also has its own sort of culture. So I would say there's great entrepreneurial pockets all over the place. I've even seen it in different college towns. I, I lecture at Cornell University and frankly, Ithaca has a great uh, innovative entrepreneurial spirit and a lot of wonderful innovations come out of there too. And there's a, a tiny little city relative to the Boston's, New York's uh, of the world, but certainly uh, the caliber of companies that come out of there are, are just as uh, wonderful. Do you think being a woman uh, walking into the boardroom, uh, do you think it's an advantage or a disadvantage? I would have thought, you know, I know you a little now, but I would have thought you being the, the the diminutive person that you are, that you can take traditional male high rollers by surprise because you obviously kind of know, know what you're talking about, but you don't exactly walk into a room and, and kind of throw your, your nausea and your intellect around. So have you been able to kind of discern the fact that maybe sometimes people don't take you as seriously as they should when negotiating? You know, I've learned uh, uh, not too long ago, but long enough ago to have learned that there's we have zero hope of ever controlling how other people are going to perceive us. Mm -hmm. uh, as much as we wish we could, I think a lot of well-intentioned people waste a lot of efforts and time trying to control how other people perceive them. Um, you know, the best I can do is, is hope I can, uh, you know, appreciate what I see in the mirror every morning uh, to some degree. I think when I walk in and sit at a table negotiating, I I feel the strongest position you can take is to know your topic well 
and to be transparent. I believe that the mistakes that people make in negotiating is uh, trying to outgame the other person or seeing it as some sort of that the win of the situation is nailing somebody else to the wall. Um, when, as I said in the beginning of our conversation, the win really has to be can all of us sitting at the table do the best we can given our circumstances? Because a successful deal just gets you to the start uh, of another starting line. It's not a finish line. I think this has always kind of struck me about serial entrepreneurs is, do you love the business or dare I say, is it really the art of the deal? Um, <laughs> I, uh, I love, um, I love podcasting. I used to own uh, an internet company. I loved that. And I, and I was in love with that more than I was actually deal making. And I kind of get the sense from you that you like deals and, and actually what the, what the company is, is purely transactional. Um, to be successful, is it all about the art of the deal? I actually don't believe in the art of the deal. I think that's a lot of hooey. Um, I do believe in business opportunity. I believe in the potential for extraordinary long-term value. It's what my entire podcast is about. I think if you are looking at the deal as some sort of art or game, you're really missing out on long-term value. You're completely missing it. And those are the people who feel like they have to say, look at how much I got over that other guy, right? Or over that other party, I really screwed them or I really took them down to the last penny. Um, it's a very greedy, short-sighted, and it's a, it's a common insecurity of a lot, unfortunately, too many business leaders. Um, I really just love the notion of if there's a company out there and then there's another party out there, whether it be another strategic company that's buying that company, whether it's a venture fund investing in that company, the notion of being to bring parties together that will create something so much more than either of them would have been a part. That to me is something extraordinary. That's creating value. And that's creating value in perpetuity, long-term value. It's not a, a short-term greedy play. It's let's keep this going. Let's get to a higher point in the mountain. Let's keep building what we can to create something amazing. And just before we go, if there is somebody out there who's listening to this and is thinking, right, I've got this great idea for a business uh, and they need to go forward with it. How can they take a little bit of your knowledge, a little bit of your value uh, and put that into their business? Uh, where can they find out some of your um, great kind of ideas and thoughts on business and business leadership? Uh, well, my podcast on unapologeticcapitalist.com. Uh, certainly my early episodes are very, uh, if you're a very early stage, uh, they're very how-to, especially how to understand uh, if your idea is an opportunity or how to build a business plan or how to pitch your venture. Uh, some of the more later episodes are far more about negotiation and leadership and those types of discussions. And you can find them at unapologeticcapitalist.com. You can find the whole list on unabolicdeticcapitalist.com slash iTunes. Alison Gerlach, thank you for coming on to Friday 15. Thank you so much for having me, Royfield. Perfect, simple, super, we've done it. That's it. Yeehaw. Riders on the Storm is an opus by American rock band The Doors. It was released as the second single from their sixth studio album, L.A. Woman, in 1971.
Christopher Michael Taylor is professionally known as Son, spelled S-O-H-N, and is an English singer and songwriter and record producer based in Vienna. On Conrad, he sings of a dystopian present that rings hauntingly true on the day before an election. Hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget, you can follow the show's progress on Facebook by simply typing in Friday 15. You can also find us on Twitter, where you can follow me, where I'm at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Now, every Thursday, you can jump onto Twitter and tweet me and nominate a song for me to put into this week's Friday 15. iTunes reviews, folks, are extremely important. They're the lifeblood of any podcast. Please go onto iTunes and write us a, a glowing review. And don't forget, finally, you can email me from Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. See you all again in seven days' time for more good music and great conversation.